You're listening to Talks from the Apostolic Joanite Church. Thank you all for coming. Of course, I am William Bean. I'm the primate for the United States for the Apostolic Joanite Church. And today we're going to be talking about the sacrament of reconciliation, or the sacrament of penance. And as before, I'm going to rely a lot on, on you guys, because I, I fear, looking over my notes, that there are some assumptions that I've made about people's familiarity with this as a sacramental institution. And so if there is something that is unclear or something that, that you need uh, to say something uh, more about, please, by all means, just, just let me know. I want to start with, oh, I'm getting mood music, too. Sorry. Um, I felt the need to you know, humiliate you for that. So <laughs> I'll have to go to confession afterwards. But uh, we use these, these three primary terms to talk about this very, very important sacrament. The sacrament of penance, the sacrament of reconciliation or confession. And strictly speaking, these refer to three different but very, very important aspects of one and the same. And both in the Catholic and the uh, Orthodox traditions, all of these terms are used. This is, there's not one that's sort of unique or, or pertains more to, to one tradition than the other. When we talk about penance, we're talking about the attitude of the person who comes in who is sorry for some, some sin, some misgiving. And of course, I don't think that there's a word in the English language that is as laden with theological and ethical assumptions as the word sin. And I think that I, I try to think of it in terms of its original Greek, hamartia, uh, missing the mark, going astray, committing some error. Uh, so it isn't, at least I think for, for us as Gnostics, about a violation or transgression against some particular set of, of rules or, or some, some arbitrary principle that we violated. But rather, it has to do with, with, with us not living up to our own standards in many ways, of us not living up to the standards that we have set for ourselves. And so when we approach the sacrament, we do so in a state of penance, that we are penitent that we are sorry for the sins that we've committed, the errors that, that we've fallen into, and so we seek to, to, to be absolved of that error, that we seek to, to make good on that error. So penance, on the one hand, is that attitude of the penitent. Confession refers to one of the actions that is a necessary element of, of the, the penitent moving forward beyond his or her error or sin. That is to say that you speak your sin, that you confess your sins in the presence of, of a priest, of some other person. We're going to talk about the, the importance of the minister, the priest in this context. But that there has to be a, a kind of vocalization, a kind of speech act, to use the technical terminology that allows us to begin to move beyond what we have done in the past for which we are truly sorry. 
but it's this one in the Catholic Church in particular, and since Vatican II, this term reconciliation has been increasingly used to describe uh, the sacrament of, of penance, and, and rightly so. And we do see this in the, the Orthodox communion as well. Uh, I was actually looking, just as part of the research, looking at the Orthodox Church in America's sort of frequently asked questions. And one of them is, I hear people talking about reconciliation. Has there been a change in the terminology? And the answer was, no, we've always used this terminology, that this is an appropriate way to describe what's going on. We're not watering it down. We're not changing it into something else. We're not trying to make it hippy-trippy. We're not trying to be politically correct. That this is, in fact, what happens, most importantly, in the sacrament, that we are reconciled to the church and to God. That having admitted, confessed our errors, having been truly sorry for them, we are absolved of those sins and we become, once again, part of the fullness of the body of Christ that is the church. So these are all good ways to talk about this thing that we call the sacrament of penance or the confession. The structure of confession has traditionally been this speaking of, of our sins and seeking absolution for them. Uh, just one more note. I said we sometimes use this, especially in the Catholic context, to also refer to the, the thing we do to make good. So there's the sort of stereotypical image of the Catholic confession. You go in, you talk to the priest, the priest you know, absolves you of your sins and gives you a penance. It's a, a, a bit of terminological slippage there, but, but it refers to some particular thing that you go to do, whether it's a set of prayers or you know, making good with somebody whom you've wronged or something like that. Um, we're not going to talk a whole lot about that because within the AJC, this is not a traditional aspect of, of the sacrament of confession. This is not something that we impose uh, in general. Uh, not, a, not to say that there isn't a place for it, but it's not, uh, it's not as integral a, a, a part as it is in some other traditions. The sacrament has a very, very long history. Uh, we can even see scriptural precedent for this. Um, in Matthew chapter 3, uh, we're told that, that the followers of the Baptist were, were baptized and confessed their sins. Right? That this confession of sins was an important part of, of being reconciled, of being washed clean. And often it is this washing clean that seems to be, that seems to be the, the trope or the, the conceit that's used to describe how this works. That in this sacrament we are, we are cleansed, that the sins are washed away. Of course, often in Greek Bible, in the New Testament, we hear the, the sort of idea of being washed clean in blood. Uh, the, there's a wonderful description in the book of Revelation of the 144,000 who have their robes washed white in blood. And there's a wonderful sort of irony there. There's a, a, a wonderful contradiction. And certainly, Gnostic scripture is rife with contradiction with trying to understand uh, the ineffable through inherent contradiction. You read the Thunder Perfect Mind, much of it is simply a litany of contradictions. 
but there's something wonderful that we are washed white in blood. That there is something that has to be sacrificed. That there is something that has to be, the, 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 something dramatic has to happen. That this isn't just, you know, sticking, you don't just stick your robes in the washing machine and pour some bleach in. That there has to be this bloodiness. That there has to be, there has to be an, an admission of the cost. And I think that that's very, very true in, in the sacrament, that, that there is a price to be paid, that there is some difficulty here. And whenever I hear people say, well, but you know, I would love to do this, but I just can't you know, say this thing in front of somebody else. It's just too difficult for me to do. And my impulse is always to say, well, if it were easy, then you wouldn't, it wouldn't have value. It wouldn't, it wouldn't be what it is. That, Part of the reason that this has power, part of the reason that this is potent, is because it takes work. It requires us to do something extraordinary. And there is something extraordinary about going to another human being and saying, I made a mistake. I'm, I, I am fallen. I have, I have failed to meet up with my own expectations and demands. And in doing so, I've created a barrier between myself and my fellow human beings, between myself and God, between myself and the church, between myself and my family, myself and my community, that admitting that is something that, on the one hand, is difficult, and it takes guts. It's something that, that is, in and of itself, a purifying act. It is, in and of itself, something that, that has spiritual efficacy, the willingness to admit is very, very important. So we see in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, in both Hebrew and Greek Bible, this talk of washing clean. And there is some sense, we would hope, that in the Sacrament of Reconciliation, that when we walk out, we are, we're reset in some way. We're put back to, to the place where we ought to be. We're, we're washed clean of those things that are are making us dirty, that are making us filthy. I mean, there is a certain pleasure in that too, I think, and there is a certain release in that, I mean, which is no different from putting on a clean suit of clothes. You know, you've been, you've been working all day, and you know, you've been, been marching around, you're in the city, there's the grime and the dirt, and your fingernails you know, look like you've been mining coal for the last 12 hours, and you, know, you take a shower, you, you, you know, put on something clean, and you feel better about yourself. You feel like you've come back to being human. This is always what I say. I get out of the shower and I say, I feel almost human now. I feel like, like everything that has been, been building up on me has been washed away. Whenever we talk about sacraments, we're talking about the, the outward manifestations of inward grace. And this is one of our, our standard tropes for talking about the sacrament. The sacrament, whether it be, be the Eucharist or the sacrament of penance or the initiatory sacraments of, of baptism and, and uh, confirmation and orders, whatever it be, there, it is an outward sign of inward grace. It is a manifestation of, of, uh, of an inward presence. And that's true of penance as well. That it is a manifestation of the forgiveness of, of God 
forgiveness manifested in the community to which we are reconciled. So there is a true sacramental nature to, to being a penitent. Of course, traditionally, the sacraments have been characterized by their form, matter, and intent. And here I'm going to fall back, as I'm going to do in many cases, on, on Catholic and Orthodox teaching regarding the, the structure of these. The form, and here I'm, any, any, if we have any of our seminarians here who haven't written their paper on uh, the sacrament of confession, you want to take notes now. The form is the statement, I absolve you. The, the form is that ritual statement of, of absolution. The matter is the, the proximal act of the penitent. The penitent coming in and, and being in a state of, uh, of penitence, being in a state of, of sorrow for the errors that they've committed. And the intent, naturally, is, is the penitent's contrition. So the, the traditional form, matter, and intent based on uh, Catholic teaching have that form. The minister, the ordinary minister, is, or the confessor, is always a priest. And this has actually been a matter of, uh, of a lot of criticism, a lot of debate, a lot of dispute. Uh, from the Protestant perspective, there are a lot of people who suggest that there is something arrogant, that there is something uh, overreaching about the demand that we confess our sins in the presence of a priest. Isn't it enough to seek absolution from God? And I think in many ways the, we're going to diverge from, from Catholic and, and Orthodox teaching and say true penitence a willingness to, to seek to be reconciled from God is efficacious, that we, we can be forgiven in this way. If God is all merciful, if the, the, the hidden father is really the seat of all mercy, then yes, that is certainly possible. And the obligation that we confess to a priest is not one that we hold to hard and fast within, say, a tradition like the AJCs. Um, some would say, isn't it enough to confess our sins sort of in a general way, in the, a kind of general absolution that we see in the, uh, in the liturgy? Yes, this is very, very important to be sure. But there is something extraordinary about confessing your sins in the presence of a priest. And it has certain benefits. It does allow us to do certain things that uh, a private or a general confession doesn't allow us. And so it is useful, and it's something that we want to make sure that we offer to, uh, to our, our congregations in the AJC. The scriptural basis for the priest's power to absolve comes from the Gospel of John. Whose sins you shall forgive, they are forgiven them. Whose sins you shall retain, they are retained. 
That is to say that it is given to the apostles and their successors in the priesthood, the power to bind and loose. And it's important to remember, and we're going to come back to this later, it's important to remember that both powers are reserved to the priesthood. Both to say, I absolve you of your sin, I release you, I set you free from the sin, I, I help you to wash clean. And to say, no, I bind you. I tell you that you're, you, you're not there yet. And we're going to talk about exactly what that means if the priest were to say, no, I bind you to your sin. This is what we uh, refer to in the Catholic tradition as the potestas clavium, the, the power of the keys. That the giving of the, the, the keys to, to heaven is the power to admit and to refuse. Now, I think that there are very few cases where a priest will want to be in a situation of refusing absolution to a penitent. And so one of the questions that sometimes arises is, what's actually going on? If I, if I sincerely go to my priest, to my confessor, and I confess my sins, and I show that I'm truly contrite, what right does this woman or man have to suggest that I should not get absolution? And the answer is that the priest qua priest, or the priest qua human being, doesn't, doesn't do that. But rather, the priest is in the position of discerning your position vis-a-vis -vis your own sin. That it is the, the, the job of the priest to, to discern whether or not you are truly contrite. When we start to talk about the seal of the confessional, and obviously we're going to spend a good deal of time on that as both a, a practical and a theological matter, the possibility of telling somebody, no, I, I'm not going to give you the absolution that you asked for. I'm not going to, to wash you clean. I'm not going to, uh, to allow that, that venison to flow from, from God. I'm going to stopper it up in some way. And this is a possibility, but really it is only a recognition that, that there has been some lack or some failure on the part of the penitent. That it is ultimately not the priest that denies absolution, but the priest discerns that your actions and your attitudes are preventing you from obtaining absolution. And that I think is an important distinction. One that I think is probably lost on the penitent who gets refused. And that has, has got to be a very, very painful experience to open oneself up in this way and to not get the satisfaction that one wants has got to be devastating in some sense. And so obviously this is something that is reserved for the most dire of circumstances. The use of the sacrament is judicial and therapeutic. So the purpose is both judicial and therapeutic. Judicial in the sense that it has to do with, with judgment. And we even see the terminology of the tribunal of penance. That to, to go into the, the confessional, as it were, whether that's a 
you know, a, a, a traditional confessional or a, a reconciliation room or a coffee shop with your priest or, or somebody's living room, whatever. To go into the confessional is to enter into this, this court. Interestingly, a court in which the penitent is simultaneously the accuser, the accused, and the chief witness. That, that when you go into the confessional, what you do is you say, I'm going to make an accusation against this person, that this person has done these horrible things, or in some cases not so horrible things, but things which are problematic for our own spiritual growth. This person has done these things that are wrong. Well, who's this person? Well, that person is me. Right? That's the person I'm accusing. So now I'm, I'm the accused, I, that I have done these things that are wrong. Well, what evidence can you, can you give that you've done these wrong things? Well, well, I'm the one who did them. So I was a witness to all of them. I was there the whole time. So you are simultaneously accuser, accused, and witness. And the priest, then, is, is a kind of judge, a kind of adjudicator, not a prosecutor. I think that's important that the judicial function of the, of the priest is not to press you, is not to prosecute for your crimes, is not to, to make sure that you pay for your wrongdoing, but rather is the one who, who gives the, the sentence that is necessary for satisfaction. The hope is, of course, that as priestly judges, we are judges of mercy, that it is the absolution that is given, that is the satisfaction. But it is therapeutic as well. And I think that when we talk about the sacrament as a sacrament of reconciliation, the most important aspect there is that of, of therapy. Not in the psychoanalytic or, or psychological sense, but in the sense that there is a beginning to healing. That our errors, our sins, the mistakes that we make are things that, that infect us, that contaminate us. They're a kind of contagion. They're a kind of illness that we carry along with us. And they are, it is a debilitating illness. It breaks us down. It provides a barrier to the things that we want to accomplish. It makes our day-to-day -day living more difficult. And so we want to be cured of our disease. So now we've sort of shifted metaphors, right? So we're no longer talking about uh, witnesses and prosecution and accusers and accused. Now we're talking about doctors and patients. That the, the point of the sacrament of reconciliation is to allow there to be healing, to allow the rift between ourselves and others to be healed, to be reconciled to ourselves and our church, to be made whole again. And interestingly, this, this attitude or this, this uh, allegory of, of being made whole is one that is simultaneously uh, medical and legal. In a medical sense, you know, we make the body whole. We, we return it to its uh, pristine state. But there's also, and I think that Deacon John will back me up on this, that there is the idea of being made whole through legal action. So, so if, I've, if I've been wronged by somebody, I go and I prosecute them in a, 
in a court, I, I you know, sue them uh, for some damages. The point of those damages is to make me whole, to, to return me to the state that I was before. And I think there, therefore there, there is this, this language of being made whole that we sometimes use in the sacrament of reconciliation in which we are put back to the way that we're supposed to be, that we're returned to our, our proper state. More than anything else, it is this healing practice, this healing element that is most important for us within the AJC. The purpose of offering this sacrament is to allow the penitent to heal. That's what's important. And therefore, we rely on the penitent to identify her or his own need for treatment, as it were. We don't say, everybody has to come into the doctor today. We don't say, you know, you have to go see the dentist once every six months. We say, if there's something wrong, we've got, we've got treatment. We've got a practice that, that can help with that. There's been a lot that's been said at uh, AJC conclaves about making the distinction, and I think that this is another point where this bears emphasis, between pastoral work, pastoral counseling, spiritual work, and often very, very necessary and important psychological uh, medical interventions. We, as a confessor, the priest is not a psychologist. She's not a, a, a psychotherapist. He's not a doctor. And we have to be very, very careful on the, on the confessor side of things, that we not confuse those roles. Uh, oftentimes, it's, it's a, a combination that, that the penitent comes to us and says, I need to confess. You hear the confession, you grant absolution, at which point you say, now you've started healing. And here are some resources that you might want to take advantage of to continue that. We oughtn't to presume that, that somehow the absolution is the sum total of healing for what are often serious and debilitating psychological neuroses and psychoses. And that's something that, that we as, as priests are not qualified in general to handle, and we shouldn't presume to do so. So I, while I'm using this sort of therapeutic uh, terminology, this medical terminology, I don't want there to be any confusion that we're presuming to, uh, to, to give therapy in the, uh, in the strict sense, but rather we're allowing healing to happen. And oftentimes in sacraments, especially I think from the perspective of, of an organization like the HAC, it's not so much about the priest doing as the priest letting happen. Creating a space in which you know, the congregant, the penitent, the, the ordinate can effect their own self-transformation. And I think nowhere is this more true than in the sacrament of penance, where we allow as priests a space for, for healing to happen. We don't heal. We don't repair, we're not gonna stitch up that psychic damage, but we're going to create a space in which that kind of healing can happen. And in many ways, this is the same thing that a doctor does as well, that he or she creates a space in which the body can begin to heal itself. 
in which the body can, can do the things that it needs to do in order to make sure that it gets back to its appropriate state. And I think that that's exactly what we're doing here when we allow this space for healing to happen. I'm sure that's making a horrible noise on the microphone, it's slurping away. When you talk for a living, you realize the importance of hydration. So, for us as Gnostics, the question of the role of reconciliation, I think, is a very, very valid one. For a kind of organization, a kind of community, that emphasizes the importance of personal, direct, one-to-one -one relationships with God, the idea of having to, or, or even the, the appropriateness of confessing to a third party is problematic. This is, a, this is a strange kind of arrangement. I think that there is a tendency to think of the relationship between penitent, confessor, and God as this kind of mediation. Oh, I'm the priest. I'm going to stand in for God here. I'm going to be, you know, in persona of the divine here. Well, I don't think any of us wants to be put in that position, nor do we want to see what are ultimately ordinary people with faults and flaws just like us put in the position of, of playing God with. And to be sure, that is not how we see that within this context. There is no sense in which the, the, the priest is a, a stand-in for God or the priest is playing the role of God. But rather, the priest, again, allows something to happen, facilitates something, guides us towards the kind of relationship with the merciful God that is necessary for us to complete our own healing. That if I come in to, to my confessor as a penitent, I don't expect the penitent to fix me. Or excuse me, I don't expect the confessor to fix me. I expect my confessor to open up a space in which I can have an experience of the divine that is useful for me in, in beginning my own healing process. And so I don't think that there's necessarily any contradiction between the sort of idea of the priest as facilitator or guide and the demand for direct one-to-one, face-to-face, as it were, uh, encounter with the divine that is so much the part of, of Gnosticism as such, especially in its ecclesial form. So yes, it, it does you know, have some of the trappings of a more sort of vicarious atonement sort of structure. Uh, but I wouldn't want to take that too far. I wouldn't want to, to overemphasize that. Rather, we have this role of the priest whose job it is to make sure that, that she or he does anything that she or he can do to open up the possibility of these profound experiences of the divine. And I think in many cases, the, the highest expression of that is what happens in the confession. But the confessional only works if it's sealed. 
And the idea of the seal of the confessional is one that is very, very important in trying to think about the way in which this sacrament works. Over and over and over again, we are told in, in both mainstream and, and in the sort of uh, esoteric branches of Christianity that the seal of the confessional is inviolable. That is absolute. There is no exception. It's not inviolable except if the court tells me I have to say something. And it's not inviolable except if I think people are going to be injured. It's not inviolable except if it's inconvenient for me. It is inviolable. Full stop. That's it. That is the, that is the be all and end all of the sacrament of confession. The seal of the confessional has to be absolutely inviolable. This is not just keeping confidences. To be sure, keeping confidences is, is an important thing that we do in all aspects of our lives, whether in our, our personal relationships with, with friends and family and lovers, uh, with our, our relationships that are uh, in the workplace, our professional relationships, in which certain kinds of information needs to be kept confidential. Uh, I, I know certainly there are, certain, there are meetings that, that I have to attend to uh, you know, as a teacher where we're told you know, this, is, this is privileged information, this is confidential. We don't speak of it outside the room. Those are all very, very important things and those are demanding enough those are often challenging enough in our day-to-day -day living to keep those confidences. I, I know for me, I, it's so difficult for me to, to, to keep confidences. Whenever somebody tells me something, my first impulse is, my God, I've got to share this. And overcoming that, really sort of, of clamping down on that impulse is very, very difficult. But we're talking even more than just keeping a confidence or keeping information privileged. We're talking about keeping a secret sealed so tightly that we keep it a secret even from ourselves as confessors. That, that in a very, very real sense, what is confessed to me in that context is not coming to me. It is not information, it is not knowledge that I have. And we sometimes jokingly talk about the fact that, that if you go to your <coughs> confessor and you confess your sins to her and you see her the next day, you know, after you've been absolved, and you say, oh, you know that thing that we were talking about yesterday, she'll say, I'm not sure what you're talking about. You know, if you want to go ahead and remind me, you can. Because she simply doesn't have that information. She simply doesn't have that knowledge. When we talk about the inviolability of the seal of the confessional, we say that we cannot, as confessors, reveal what is told to us in that, uh, it, it, under that seal within the sort of ritual context of the confession by word or sign to any other person. And even death does not invalidate the seal. Right? If, if, 
Uh, I confess something to, to my confessor and then promptly go outside and drop dead, that's it. I and mean, that, that seal is still inviolate. It doesn't go away simply because I'm not there to enforce it. It is eternal. It is absolute. I, I, this is one of those few cases where we're using these really extreme terms in a, a meaningful way. That if I'm told something in the context of the sacrament of confession, I will take it to my grave. And it has to be that way. It cannot be otherwise. It cannot be otherwise simply for practical purposes. We're asking, as confessors, we're asking people to come in and share some of their deepest, darkest, most uncomfortable, most difficult truths. And no one, I think, would be willing to do that if they had any fear at all that that information could get out, that information could be made public. That the maintenance of, the, of that confidence, of the seal of the confessional, makes confession possible. In the same way that my conversations with my attorney or my conversations with my doctor are privileged. And I wouldn't be honest with my doctor if I worried that the things that I tell her are going to be posted on the headlines. This is something that we deal with in, in medical ethics, the, the importance of that confidentiality. I, just a quick question based on that. Mm -hmm. you know, so you, you, know, you watch Law and Order or something like that, and it, you know, can, a, can a detective or something like that press you for information that you could give, or would it be in the situation of like, you know, the, the same thing that would happen that would be applicable when they would go to uh, your lawyer or go to your doctor? So you're, you're saying, so uh, somebody comes to me, uh, gives their confession, yeah. and then the police or some other kind of civil authority says, well, you've got to tell me what they said. Right. I have to be willing to, to go to prison or die rather than reveal that secret. I, that, it has to be that way. Uh, and uh, no legal power should be able to compel me to reveal what is told to me in the seal. And interestingly, uh, there, are, there are actually legal allowances that are made for this. It varies state by state. But for example, as a teacher, uh, and I work for, uh, for a municipal uh, institution, as a teacher, I am a mandatory reporter when it comes to uh, child sexual abuse and assault. So if I discover anything that leads me to believe that a child has been has been uh, sexually abused in the normal operation of, of my capacity as a teacher, I have to report that. I have to go to the authorities and I have to tell them what I know. But there is an action in, in Illinois and also in, in Wisconsin, I know, I'm not, I'm not sure about the laws in other states, there are specific exemptions for, for confession. And it's only within the context of, of the sacrament of confession. So, you know, if you, you know, say, you know, hey, Your Grace, I'd like to, to talk to you about something, and you tell me some horrible thing that you've done, mm -hmm. uh, that's not under the seal. Right. That's not under the seal. That's, I mean, obviously, I would like to keep that confidence. Sure. But I keep that confidence in an ordinary sense. Yeah. Right? 
Uh, if I were press, or not to impute anything to you, but you know, you know, if you were to say, you know, I sexually abused a child, I'm going straight to the authorities so fast it'll make your head spin. Right. You tell me that exact same thing in the context of the confession. I can't say anything, and I won't. Oh, that's absolute. And that is, I think, honestly, one of the points where where this obligation of the priesthood gets really, really sticky, where it, it gets really dangerous. What happens, let's just get down to brass tacks with it here. What happens when somebody walks into your confessional and says, I've been sexually abusing my daughter for the last 10 years? What do you do? You legally you know, are, are obligated, if it's outside of the seal, to go tell the authorities. But within the seal of the confessional, you may not violate that seal, period. And if that is something that, that, that you feel that you cannot abide by, then you cannot in, in good conscience take the vows of the priesthood. And that is, that is a hard line. That is, a, that is a, a, a difficult thing to look somebody in the eye whom you know would be a fantastic priest and say, this is a deal breaker. This is absolute. Um, well, actually, I was going to save this towards the end, but now that you bring this up, um, in such a case, uh, retention of the sins could definitely be a possibility, correct? Well, there is some debate about this. Okay. I'm going to go off reservation here for just a second. I'm going to speak my own position. I believe, and I'm going, to, I'm going to look in the camera and say this is me, I'm not speaking for the church at this point. I believe that it would be legitimate for me as a confessor to say the precondition for absolution is you going to the authorities. Turn yourself in. I will walk with you right now. We will go, I will hold your hand, I will, you know, I will testify in court that you were contrite and that, that you know, you were or appropriately uh, repentant, but until that happens, I bind you to your sin. Which, now, oh. is that permissible? There are some, some theologians who will say, absolutely not. I'll give you my thinking on it. And again, this is my, my thinking and my thinking alone. I believe that if you come to me and you confess a sin of that gravity, and you are not willing to take responsibility for your actions, then you are not properly contrite. That, you, that, that, that is precisely this discernment. I am not refusing to absolve you. You're, I am discerning that you are not properly repentant, and that is preventing you from being absolved. Responsibility is part of contrition. Responsibility is absolutely part of contrition. So, if I am speaking for myself, you know, I believe that that is absolutely a legitimate move. And this is why I want to emphasize, you know, for me, the power to bind and to loose is the power to bind and to loose. Whose sins you shall forgive, they are forgiven them. And whose sins you shall retain, they are retained. Which means I have that prerogative as a priest. Now, I can't misuse that. 
I can only use that in the case in which I truly believe that there is a lack of repentance. But I think an unwillingness to take you know, sort of legal responsibility for your actions speaks precisely to that responsibility. I'm probably going to get myself in trouble here. Good. This is, this is where... You'll probably say something interesting then. Well, this, this is where the lawyer in me comes out, is I take this a step further. And this is, like I said, this always gets me in trouble, is I do not believe the seal of the confession applies if the person who has come into that relationship, into that space, has not come for penance, confession, and reconciliation. The tradition absolutely disagrees with you. I know they do. The and tradition absolutely disagrees, and the church absolutely disagrees Not with necessarily. You. The this church does. This church does. <laughs> the, the, the boundary is created, I think, I think everybody from Catholic to Orthodox, um, including Anglican, any apostolic tradition, the boundary is created when the ritual is entered, and we're talking that um, there is mutual agreement. This is this is right. confession. The ritual words begin. The stole is on. When that ritual is begun, the boundary is now created right. around it. Um, regardless, you know, regardless. I mean, the the their intent or the lack thereof, that's between God. But there's also an intent and a and a presence of or a lack thereof between the priest and God. Exactly. And so it's their responsibility that the boundary is created. Whether or not the penitent honors that, that becomes, of course, between them and the divine, but the priest assumes it is the case. Absolutely. And even if it's determined later that it isn't, the priest is still bound to that, and that has nothing to do with the penitent. That has everything to do with the priest. I think that's yeah. absolutely right. That's the tradition. The yes. point I'm making is the Catholic Church in its doctrine is moving away from that now. Because the canons are clear. The canons are clear, but it is open for debate. They're definitely of the, open for debate. Because of not here, not. Because <laughs> of the abuse. This is one of the very few places where we're going to say that. You know, yeah. because of the abuse yeah. of the confessional now, this has become a real issue. And the most recent guidance, the example I'll give you, is one you once gave to me, the poisoning of the wine. Yeah, we'll talk about that in just a minute. Yeah. The Catholic Church has a new rule on that. Yeah. I mean, that, that is handed down to the priest that you have the duty to make sure that wine does not touch somebody else's lips. Yeah. That would be an absolute violation of the seal, yet that is the rule now. Yeah, and, and that, I think, is a divergence from, from centuries of practice, in, from centuries in, of church. In, in order for the seal to work, in order for it to do its job for the millions and millions of good people, who seek to relieve their conscience of you know, legitimate concerns for the things that they are truly sorry. In order for it to work, it has to be absolute yeah. across the board. If there's reason to believe that that seal lacks integrity, simply on, on the discretion, particularly on the discretion, it, it, it doesn't work. And you know, people say, well, there are other avenues. It doesn't have to. There are people, I mean, there are lots of very good reasons why you wouldn't talk to your doctor. There are even more good reasons why you wouldn't talk to your parents, your peers, your yeah. coworkers, your friends. For priests often, you know, become the people that people go talk to when they feel they can't talk to anybody else. And when they're in that position, they need that. They need somebody to be able yeah. to talk to. So it has to be absolute across the board. Has there been abuses? Absolutely. Priests are confessing to other priests, knowing full well that they're not going to do anything about it. Is it is that absolutely evil? 
Yeah. Yeah. That's terrible. But I mean, that's a that's a that's a beat to death. But we should but we should not be heaping one evil onto another. But that that's my question: is do we participate in that evil? We ourselves have a solemn duty and a solemn relationship with God. If you yep. believe that this mm -hmm. is what confession does, have we just ourselves subrogated the confession? No, no, I don't think so. Well, I don't no. think so because. Because ultimately, that we are not complicit in covering up a sin at that point. We are not. We're not whitewashers. Well, that's why I said that's where the yeah. lawyer in me disagrees. Because yeah, the, if it was up to me as a prosecutor, I'd haul you in. The trust and the love that we're obligated to as priests with our vows in our community means that when we walk into that scenario, we extend the seal or the shroud or the boundary around mm -hmm. that situation before we know what we're walking into. I mean, that, you know, we, we talk about uh, priests offering themselves on the altar or being in persona Christi. I mean, that's, there, there is a danger of going before the whips, of going before Pilate in that, in, in that situation. We extend, we offer that love and trust unconditionally. And, and if, if somebody doesn't meet it halfway or reciprocate it, um, they eat and drink damnation upon themselves, but it is our duty to offer it in, in absolute trust. And that's what it is. I mean, it's not, it, you know, it's, it's far beyond simply being a hard ass. It is about that love and trust, not just for that person, but for everybody else who, who reposes that trust in you. So, yeah. Do I hear what you're saying? Absolutely. Oh yeah, that I, makes me mad. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, and, and, and frankly, if you're, if you're not a priest, priest and the idea of somebody abusing the seal in that way doesn't make your blood boil, you probably shouldn't be a priest. I mean, I, I get that. And that's why we use these examples. These, these are precisely the examples that, that are going to challenge these ideas. That doing what we must do in this case is hard. Now, let's also acknowledge something. Let's back away from this just a little bit. Let's acknowledge something. What are the legitimate chances that you will encounter this situation within the AJC? Extremely slim. But if there's any chance at all, you have to take it seriously. We have to be prepared for it. We have to think it through. Um, you know, it, under the, the seal of confession, I've heard a lot of things. I've heard a lot of things. Things that, things that make me shift uncomfortably in my chair, I'll tell you. But... You know, I've been very, very lucky in that there has never been anything that I was in the least bit conflicted. And if you were, you wouldn't be the same. The, 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 the conflict is my problem. Yeah. That's on me, right? But I've, I've been lucky in that no matter what I've heard under the seal of the confessional, it, it has never even entered into my mind that there might be any justification whatsoever in this or any other world for the violation of that seal. And the fact of the matter is that that's, I think that that experience is probably going to be pretty representative. Is there a possibility of something that will just make me go home and cry myself to sleep? Yeah. Will I break the seal because of it? No. The example that John is, is, is referring to, in case uh, the, those of you who don't know this, this is a, a kind of traditional, this is the, the Jesuits uh, use this example, a way of talking about the seal. You're a, a priest, you're about to say mass. 
in comes a congregant and says, Father, before we say Mass, uh, I'd like you to hear my confession. Well, of course. You say, yes, of course, I'll make time for that. And they confess, you know, they enter in, the souls impose all, all that, and they say, I poisoned the communion wine. Can you say, well, okay, I can absolve you if you're properly contrite, uh, and therefore go out to the altar and dump out the communion wine. No. No, you cannot make use of that information, even to save your life. Now, one of the things, one of the reasons that the teaching of the Catholic Church has changed on this is because something else changed in the practice of the church that made this, this example more problematic than it was. Because remember, for many, many years in the church, who drank the communion wine? The priest did, and that's it. Which meant that when the priest said, I can't do anything about this, I can't act upon this knowledge, he was taking it upon himself to drink a poison chalice. When we're administering it to somebody else, that's where the church has started to say, where the Catholic Church has started to say, well, let's think about what this actually entails. Um, Again, this might be a situation I think that's analogous to, to what Deacon Michael was saying, that uh, you say, well, if you are properly repentant of this act, if you think you've done something wrong in poisoning my communion wine, well then get up there and pour it out. You, know? you take action, and once you've made that right, then I'll absolve you. So. And, and to be fair to the Catholic Church, what they've done with it now is they're still very harsh on this. You can, you can go up and you can pour that wine out, but you can't tell anybody why. Because that, that's where the, where the seal still stands. So you can just say, we're not even going to have wine with today. You can never tell anybody why. In, in uh, according to traditional interpretations, that would be violating the seal yeah. by a sign. Yeah. And, and, and the canons of the Roman Catholic Church are clear cannot reveal that by word or sign. You can't reveal the sin or the penalty. Right. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, the, the, the Catholic Church may be making these kinds of adjustments. Yeah, that is the guidance. And, uh, and I think we all understand why they would want to do that. I mean, when they understand. I think that the, the hard line would suggest that to do so is to fundamentally undermine the inviolability of that seal, which fundamentally undermines the sacrament in itself. If, if, you know, if, if I've got a balloon, in order for that balloon to stay inflated, it, it has to be impregnable. It has to be inviolable. If I've got the tiniest, tiniest, tiniest little leak, it could be the smallest leak in the world, that balloon will eventually deflate. And if the confessional seal is not absolute, if it's got the tiniest, well, in this bizarre, you know, unthinkable example, you know, then you could violate the seal, the sacrament deflates. It becomes an empty husk. I guess the one question I would throw to that is, you know, and again, I'm playing devil's advocate, assuming that we do nothing and the wine is served mm -hmm. and people die, how are we not implicit? in that murder. Did you poison those people? See, I, yeah, I'm, I'm thinking like an attorney, the answer is yes. 
but that we're, but we're not attorneys. This is not a legal matter, this is an ethical matter. Even ethically, did I put that in their mouth? I no, no, you did not. Who did? The person who put the poison in. If, if I, I am not responsible for my brother's sin. If you put it in their mouth and they die, mm -hmm. did I poison them? No. The person who put the, I didn't say that. I said I'm not morally responsible for that. Did, if I did nothing differently than I would have and if I didn't know. So let's say, let's say he doesn't confess, right? So he poisons the wine and t doesn't tell me and I administer it to my communicants. Did I poison them? No, of course not. And that's the situation we're in. Because I, I didn't know. I was not told that. But um, stepping back a little bit, um, I actually the ethics of that are fascinating. Um, so my point with the retention of that would actually be uh, largely uh, therapeutic for the person. Absolutely. As it would create a momentum for the catharsis of the individual. Yeah, yeah. I think that's absolutely right. One would assume that if somebody is coming to confess and is not properly confess that specific thing and just is doing it to show off probably. I mean they're not properly contrite. There there I mean there is always the danger of the abuse of of confession. I mean and I can imagine, I mean let's paint a picture of a horrible human being. You know? I'm gonna abuse a child and beyond abusing a child, I'm gonna go to a priest and I'm gonna tell that priest that I was abusing that child, not because I'm contrite, but because now I've infected somebody else with my sin. Now I've, I've now somebody else knows that and they can't do a damn thing about it. Or worse, they get to relive it without, con without consequences. Yeah, I mean, are there people who are going to abuse, abuse our power? There are people like that. We can't be, we can't give up our obligations because of their misdeeds. So you're in. I, I was just going to say in relation to John's thing with the uh, uh, chalice, the conversation. This is there is no theological discussion. As I was saying to Linda earlier outside, there is no theological discussion that His Grace and I have had more and more heatedly than this topic in the history of the church. Uh, and he and I agree on. Almost everything except Almost for the everything. finest of points, and here it is. The, uh, you know, if, you know, imagine there's a, a phone conversation between yourself and God. The priest is the telephone cord. Not only does it, can it not grasp hold of what it goes across, like it has no participation in that. Like, as His Grace said, for my benefit and the church's benefit, is that it's like the conversation, in terms of the poison wine, it's like the conversation never happened at all because the information isn't yours. That's my view. There are people, that, that's my view, and he's representing it accurately because that's, not only is that my view, that's the view that my predecessor had before me. That's the view of the tradition? Yeah. I mean, that is, yeah. Now, here, here, here's the thing. It's, it's, it's about not revealing the penitent, and it's about not revealing the sin. I'm going to interject uh, Monsignor Lance Hodenot into the situation as he related to me, you know, being a very practical priest. Um, there is nothing in his mind that stops him from investing and walking up to the altar and going whack. And off the altar goes the chalice and the wine is on the floor. He picks it up, he takes it back to the sacristy, 
Sucarium, and he rinses it out, and he goes on with Mass. Because it doesn't reveal the sin, and it doesn't reveal the penitent. So the final question, and I have a hard time arguing with that. The final question, the, the final question basically is the case is, do you have a right to use that information yourself? Is it yours? Did you ever truly receive it if you're a stand-in for the divine? That's the fine point between His Grace and I, because I'm pretty sure His Grace would, oops. <laughs> Actually, one thing that I have said, and, and God forbid I should ever be put in this situation, I think what I would do is walk up to the altar and drain the cup. Yeah, that's where, that's where I'm at, actually. Yeah, and, and I, I have not made use of that information, but I have also made sure that it is not to the detriment of anyone else. Although there might be a third option, too. Oh, there's a thousand options. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, thinking about this, and strangely enough, this is the first time I've heard of this scenario, um, it could be possible to feign drinking the chalice and then put it down. Yeah, that's dicey. Knock it over. Yeah. I guess the, the thing is, is the one, the one thing to which all sides of this can agree is don't reveal the penitent and don't reveal the, right, right. the sin, yeah. you know, by, by, by sign or deed or implication or anything else. The, the, the finest point of the question becomes whether the information is yours to use in such a way that you can knock the chalice over. Yeah. And there is no firm position on that either way. There no, is no there consensus among Anglican, Catholic, or Orthodox churches. Which is why you know, which is why I didn't gasp in horror when when Lance said, "Well, here's the here's the third way." Uh, oops, you know what I mean? Um, because there, there, there's there's nothing to indicate that that's not possible. Yeah. Me, I would drink the chalice, but Joanne, hold on. Yeah. So I was just thinking that, I mean, given the state of mind that you'd like to be in as a human being, so I probably obviously. dropped the chalice anyway. Yes. <laughs> That's true. And, and, and interestingly, and, and I, uh, from a scholarly standpoint, I've started to take up some of these questions. The way in which we're, we're, we're receiving secrets, secrets are told that the secret can only be kept if it's revealed. Right? I can only keep a secret if the secret is revealed to me. But then in turn, I have to keep the secret unrevealed even to myself. I have to not reveal the secret to myself because the only way that I can keep the secret is to both have the secret revealed and not revealed to me simultaneously. So. I, I want to talk about the point of the telephone line where the information goes to the divine and comes back and we are not part of it. Mm -hmm. We are part of it because we are the judicial section. Yeah. Right? And we, we have the power to bind and loose. Mm -hmm. So we have the information. We are not the telephone line. Yeah, there is a judgment process. There, yeah, a judgment yeah, it's not perfect. It's not a perfect we're, analogy. We're the NSA. That's not an easy scenario. <laughs> we're the NSA. We're not supposed to be there. <laughs> and we have this information that we can either use it or not. Yeah. And the degree to which we it's use it reveals how much we're listening. Exactly. It's metadata. We have the metadata. Um, so I'm almost thinking the deliberate wine pit would be fine. Uh, I, we can't do hints. We can't no. go that far, like in the sexual abuse. Right, thing. right. But I understand we can't look 
for such a sin, but can we observe closer? That's so a really good question. So if we were to see something outside the seal of the confessional, that would make a reasonable person suspect. That, w that we may not necessarily have noticed previous, had it not been revealed to me. That's really dicey. I would, I would, I, my first gut instinct is to say that that's fruit of poison tree. Okay. That's my first, first impulse. How far I want to take that, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I think that's to, what, to, to indicate that you to indicate that you obtain the information from an outside means without having to contrast it against the information that you're not supposed to know. I think I think it would be a giving away. I don't think you could. I don't I'm not 100 percent sure though. I'm 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 deeply suspicious of that, but uh, but I think in some sense what Juliana was saying is is right that you can never be sure even to yourself. You. Would I have noticed this anyway? Yes. I, I can't say with certainty that I wouldn't have noticed it anyway. But being the observer changes the conditions of the observed. So yeah. it's entirely possible that this person would change their behavior when you are around. Yeah. Because if nothing else, they know you have the information. Whether or not you're keeping it under seal. Right. So. so I have a question. Uh, this may sound strange, but how do you know that God didn't impel that confessor to tell you that so that you could save those people's lives? And I think at that point, I mean, yeah, I mean, we can get into a lot of this this speculative stuff. I mean, and, and whenever we're imposing, imparting motivations to the divine, I get real nervous about yeah, that, yeah. right? Uh, I, I don't want to impute to, uh, to God any particular motivation. I don't presume to know how the mind of God works. I don't sure. think any of us wants to do that. We can make a presumption based on our vows, though, but it gives a different determination. Yeah, but I, I think that that's, it's not an unreasonable way to start thinking about this, to say, uh, quite simply, you know, what is the bigger mechanism here? What is that the confession is not an isolation it's, it, it's still connected to the whole functioning of the life of the divine. And if that's the case, there may be other forces at work here. There may be other, other motivations at work. And I don't think that, I think at one and the same time, we can't presume to know those, but neither can we dismiss them out of hand. And, and that's what makes these sort of limit cases, and let's face it, we're talking about limit cases. We're talking about extreme situations. But those extreme situations, they reveal the borders of, of our dedication to these vows. Uh, I, I think that that taking into account all of these things just makes that border just a little fuzzier, and and it should be fuzzy. It should be problematic. We should be uncomfortable at the margins. We should we should be uncomfortable when we say, "What do you do when somebody confesses sexual abuse?" That should make you nervous. If it doesn't, you're doing something wrong as a human being. Right? That should make us really worried. How do we deal with that? What do I think? What do I do? How do I act? But asking those questions now in the relative safety of, of, of something like a conclave, that's when we should be working through these questions. That's when we should be asking them. So um, I, my worry, my worry with your uh, question is that it, it it just opens up 
uh, Pandora's box, right? I mean, at that point, it's anything's on the table, you know? And I think that there's a way to misuse that kind of thinking to say, well, God wants me to do this, right? And I, that's not what you're saying. I know that that's not what you're saying. But uh, I think that there, it opens up a possibility for misuse that gets really dangerous. Yeah, I just think it's, you know, where it gets even fuzzier is that we're Gnostics, right? Yeah. So we, we believe in the idea that God can communicate, you know, in a way, or reveal a, a, a greater knowledge of things and a greater order of things. And Absolutely. So, you know. Yeah. What, one of the things that, that becomes an issue with is the messianic thinking, and that I, as the priest, have to save everyone. Sure. I have to pray for everyone, and I'm certainly, I can, I can pray that this And we person, should save those we can. And we should save those we can, but in this particular case, we can't. God's got a massive budget. God's <laughs> going to take the time to come to me and say, I need you to do this. I think he's just going to reach in directly and get it done. Yeah, sure. And, and, at which point there will be an earthquake be, and the wine will fall <laughs> off of the altar and and I will I will praise God night and day eternally yeah. <laughs> for, for getting me out of that situation. Right? Yeah. So I think one, one thing that I was thinking about, uh, okay, so you're in it, both yourself and his eminence said that you would drink the cup. I would. Yes. Okay. I now, would. I would add, now I'm going to ask the question because I know that there are positions within the Catholic Church and possibly various other churches that I'm not familiar with. What is our stance on suicide? Um, I, not to get uh, you know too far afield, um, we do not take a doctrinal stance uh, on that. Um, the um, the, the way that we have approached it in the past is to say that uh, we hold open the possibilities that this is something other than uh, a surrender to the Archons. Mm -hmm. um, I think in many cases uh, it would be precisely that. It would be a surrender to uh, you know, the, the sublunary powers. Um, do we hold that to be true in every case? No, therefore we do not take a doctrinal stance on it at all. It is something that, that we simply cannot, I don't think you can lump together all suicides and simply say all suicides are acts. No. Yeah, it just, it's, it's, it's and, and that's what would be required for us to make any kind of doctrinal stance. If I, if I may. Yeah. Uh, because somebody, I've been asked this question. We've, yeah, we've hashed a this one a, a couple times. What I wrote is, we do not prohibit sacraments or rites for those who have passed at their own hand. Our rights are open to all, and these rites are important not only for those who have departed, but also and especially for those who remain. In situations outside of uh, the end of life and ending suffering, it is, of course, hoped that one would be able to see other possibilities beyond death for the resolution of sorrow and difficulty. But having looked over that chasm myself, sometimes these options are not always visible to those in that position. It is not our place to judge, and ultimately it is between them and the divine, and our prayers for peace in the space between them are always of value. The only thing the church needs you to say is, how can I help? And that's, so we don't, we don't have a, a doctrine that says, you know, they're all damned. We don't have a, a doctrine that says, you know, sure, you know, talk to yourself whenever you feel like it, you know. That's uh, obviously a problematic issue. criticism that has been leveled against the Gnostics for, you know, millennia that if you hate the world so much, why don't you just shovel up? <laughs> <laughs> Going back to the, the wine, both of you had 
said that you would drink it, but isn't that using that message? Yes. Yes. That's, uh, it goes both ways. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes, actually, it is. Yeah. yeah. Um, but if I'm, if, 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 but you wouldn't well, your course of action, right? You would, you would, you're, you're acting under the assumption that you never received that thing. So what would you do? You would be the first person to drink the wine because you would be conducting the mass as if it never happened. You wouldn't drain the, you wouldn't drain the chalice. No, you wouldn't normally drain not the chalice. Not in the, see, so well, I, th I think what I would need to do. What I would what I would hope is 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 that there's a, that enough time uh, elapses in between me taking that first sip and anybody else drinking it that I will keel over. It's a strange. You can ensure that with a long prayer. Yes, <laughs> I just pray, 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 pray yeah, do the full litany of the sovereign pontiffs in between there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you can make it through four. Juliana. So this is stepping away from the really extreme cases. Uh, this I'm asking partly because I don't come from a Catholic or any kind of a sacramental background, and so I don't know how the sacrament of confession works from a first-person you know, kind of standpoint. So when you are... Uh, acting as a confessor or as a penitent, assuming that you typically are um, going to the same person to do your confession or receiving confession mm -hmm. from the same person or crew of people, um, to what extent does the history of past confessions heard? And when you are hearing someone, it's new that, every time. Okay, it's new every time. And uh, now, whether the penitent wants to see it in that way. That's up to them, okay. right? Because, of course, the, the seal of the confessional applies to the confessor, not to the penitent, right? If the, if the penitent confesses, you know, oh, you know, I, you know, stole money from my business partner, right? And, and I absolve them. They say, you know, I, I want to find a way where I can make good on this. I'm, I'm, I'm committed to doing that. I absolve them. And then they, you know, in the struggles with their own conscience, say, you know what, I need to tell my partner. And they go and they do it, right? There's no violation of the seal there. You know, the information was theirs to begin with. Um, so, so certainly if the, uh, if the penitent wants to sort of observe that history and sort of build on, on that history, and to be sure, if you're going to the same confessor over and over again, you build up a relationship. And I, I, I don't think that there's any way that we can fully uh, sort of obliterate that history, uh, but uh, our obligation as confessors is to do so insofar as as human frailty makes that possible. Uh, so it's new every time. Clear your cash between confessions. Clear, clear your cash, yes. Yeah. So. Okay, I'm going to play devil's advocate. Okay, so we've got another, the, the, the devil switched chairs. So. <laughs> what happens if the penitent says to you, um, Father, I know I've committed this sin in the past. I know that I am weak in this area, and I did it again. Well, then, then you say, come back. You, know, the, you have to have the intention not to do it again. If you recognize your own frailty and say that, that, that you're probably going to slip back up, you know what? You're human. You come back. Well, there's you confess a real time. How many times should I forgive my brother seven times? You know, I mean, there's, 
there's a there's a benefit of that there. Yeah, I I I six times fall, seven times get up. Yeah. That's what I say. Uh, that that if if you come if you have to come to me every week for the next twelve years to confess the same exact sin, okay, so be it. You know, I you know, as long as you are doing the work that you need to do. Confession isn't a blank check to sin again. Right? It isn't it isn't saying, oh well now I've been wiped clean, now I'm just gonna go do the things that I've always done, right? You're invalidating your own your own absolution. How do you point. know when, though, as the priest? How do you know when if the penitent keeps saying to you, "I know I've done this before, and I've done it again"? How yeah, well, you do you know, know when it, they're actually being contrite and it, when they're just being habitual? I have to give them the benefit of the doubt. Linus and Lucy. Right. Charlie Brown, Charlie Brown pulling the, the Lucy, football right? away. I got a kick for that ball every time. Okay. I've yeah. got to, I've, I think that, that the assumption has to be in, in, in lacking any definitive information, I have to assume that the penitent is legitimately contrite. That has to be my, my default position. If I have some particular reason to think not, I mean, if you know, if I think that they are misusing it in this way, I think that there might be, again, an argument for, for withholding, you know, for saying, no, now you've got to, now it's got to be, you know, two weeks without doing this, and then I'll grant you absolution. I mean, you have that discretion as a priest. You know, you can, uh, you can make that judgment, and it is, it's a matter of discernment. And like every matter of discernment, it is unique and difficult. And there cannot be hard and fast rules for that. For me, I always am going to err on the side of, of giving the benefit of the doubt to the penitent. They, for the most part, they wouldn't be there if they weren't legitimately contrived. There are exceptions, of course, but they wouldn't be there otherwise. That's got to be my assumption. Now, I think this is also an interesting question. Uh, conversely, say a person knows that they're prone to a certain behavior, and let's just assume it's a minor one. Mm -hmm. um, now, according to some Catholic doctrine, there is the sin of omission within the uh, process of confession. Um, would it be appropriate, then, in our case, for a person who knows that they need to work on this to omit that information from confession? Or where would we go with that? I, I'm sorry, I'm not sure I understand the question. So, who's, who's omitting? Um, the penitent. Say the penitent is, you know, gives a usual litany of mm -hmm. things that, you know, big or small that they need to go through, but they know that there's one thing that they need to work on, and they don't have the confidence to confess that because they know that they're not entirely contrite. I think one of the, one of the advantages <laughs> of the inviolability of the seal is that it opens up the space where even if you know you're just working on it, to say, you know, Father, I, I know I'm going to backslide. I, I know I'm not there yet. But, I, but if, if we as confessors can offer that grace, how much easier, a little bit, a lot, do we make it that they can actually succeed at that? And so I would, I would like to say that we hold out the possibility that that something like that could be offered and that we would treat that with the respect that it deserves. Um, I don't necessarily think that, that it would be a sin of omission. 
to leave it out if it's something that you're that you're that you're still working on for fear that you're misusing right. the sacrament because that's it right I mean if if I mean let's say I've I've got a drug problem right you know, and that drug problem is creating a distance between myself and my my family and I know that this is I'm not going to be able to quit cold turkey you know I'm in the process of working that through do I go to my confessor and say I I'm struggling with this addiction and I want to kick it, uh, so I'm confessing that sin, uh, despite the fact that I know that probably you know 45 minutes after I walk out of the confessional, I'm going to have a needle in my arm. You know, I, I don't think that that's a violation. I don't think that that's a misuse of of the confession. That's getting all the help I can get. Okay. And of course, it's up to the penitent to decide what they want to. That is, yeah, that's at the discretion of the penitent. I'm not going to buy them. It's not for us. Absolutely. Absolutely. Lynn. What happens if the penitent, penitent does not feel absolved after? That's tricky. I mean, they can certainly return. Um, they can. They can certainly. Um, I mean, to me, and, and here I'm going to go out on a limb again. If I am a penitent and I go to my confessor and I confess my sin, and she absolves me, and I and I walk out and I go. Yeah, I still feel that weight. I still feel that. I think there's a couple of things that could be going on there. Number one, there might be an extra sacramental issue. That means I may need to also go talk to my therapist, right? That's a, that's a big possibility. Or maybe I'm still harboring doubts about my own contrition. Maybe I'm harboring doubts about my own penitence, which means I need to go back. I need, I need to say, you know what? I, I think I was holding back. I think I was, was not complete in my contrition. So now I, I have to put myself in this place again. Uh, so many of these situations are, are gonna be unique and they're gonna require significant discretion. Um, and that unfortunately places a great deal, a great burden on the penitent for their own introspection. And all we can do as, as, as pastors and, and confessors is try to open up the space where they can examine themselves most honestly and most and most clearly. Once again, sort of change topics. What about indulgences? What if we have only if we can make great jolly loads of cash out of it? No, get one, fix that in post. So, uh, but, but seriously, and, and I, I do mean this seriously. If uh, we have a parishioner who's in the military and who knows that they're not going to have access to a priest and knows that they're going to be doing things that they may not may not rest easy on their conscience. Is that something we can grant? We, I, I we have, have a, that power to bind and loose. I have a problem with uh, sort of proactive, uh, you know, confessions, right? Right. Um, I, bless me, Father, I'm going to do something. No, 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 okay? Um, so I have, I, I have grave suspicions about this. Okay. Um, that said, can we do other things to open up the space for, for potential healing in that regard? I think so. And, and I think in many cases that means reaching out in a pastoral way outside of the seal of the confessional, uh, making sure that we're available you know, by telephone or by, by email or whatever to, to be the listening ear. That's not the same as the confession, and it's important to make that distinction clear. Right. 
uh, that, that, but we can, those are things that are helpful and therapeutic as well. You know, to touch on both of what you just said, I think uh, the power of intention plays a big portion in what's happening in this case. You know, Michael mentioned catharsis earlier, and mm -hmm. I talk about that too. I'm going to be talking about it Tuesday. You know, the ethical purification of the soul, you know, or, or uh, uh, cleansing and um, suppressed emotions, you know, there has to be intention. Mm -hmm. And if you're not intent and walking into a confessional, you don't belong there. Yeah. So uh, you know that's not it's not my place to determine that no, in, right. in most cases. That's right. not that is the burden that's on the penitent. Right. And, yeah. and you know so you know no we can't say like you don't belong here. However, you know it is at our discretion, like you said, whether we're going to be absolving them of their sin. So you know. If it, you know, my dad said to me a long time ago, if you're sorry, that implies that you won't be doing it again. <laughs> but it's not 100%. Obviously, no, no, we're human, not. we sin, yeah. I get it. But the, the, the implication of I'm sorry means I'm sorry. I won't do that again. It's, it's explicit in the Catholic act of contrition. Right. right. That I will sin no more and avoid the near occasion of sin. And actually, I was just going to bring that up. Um, you back me off of Scott's concept of indulgences. Um, it's do, not mine. Or, well, <laughs> blame Monsignor Rosta. <laughs> um, I mean, we, we, we do have an act yeah. of contrition in our liturgy. And, you know, from a pastoral perspective, would it not be appropriate to have, say, a person in service in the military and use that on a nightly basis? I think that it can't hurt, right? Yeah. I mean, that's 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 a that yeah. is a, a, that a good. And call it. Uh, that's a that's a good uh, spiritual exercise in any case. Um, I I have to say just for myself as part of my own spiritual practice, um, I try never to do any any kind of liturgical, or magical, or any kind of ritual action without reciting the Confiteor. Right. You know, I, I confess to Almighty God that I have sinned through my own most grievous fault in my thought and in my words and what I've done and what I've failed to do. And I ask the Blessed Mary and all the angels and saints to pray for me through Christ our Lord. Amen. Right. You know, that's, that, that's the necessary precondition. I would not presume to step before the altar of God without seeking, uh, seeking absolution in that way. That's not the same as, as confession, but it is still spiritual, spiritually efficacious. Any other questions? I have a simple question. Oh, good. Is, is, there, is there more, or is this where we can go back and ask questions? Oh, we can certainly, yeah. Certainly, if you've got questions about the stuff that I presented, by all means. Okay. Um, at the beginning, where you talked about form, matter, and intent, mm -hmm. I missed the intent line where it was the penitence something. It's the it's the penitence. Uh, well, the penitence, penitence. Uh, that 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 they are truly sorry for their sin. That I is. The, I say it's the matter because the intent is still to do what the church does with that sacrament, which is. Uh, yeah, I was just I was just pulling this out. Uh, this is that's that's coming straight from from Rome. Uh, I was just you know I was just pulling that out of. I, I could be wrong, but the, the, the contrition forms part of the triangle. Yeah, yeah, it's the contrib I, I, the way I've read it, uh, and I can be wrong, 
I can, you know, it's, it, it, I may have misread this, uh, that the intent is the contrition of the penitent, that they are contrite. So. And I did have one other question. Sure. Um, power of the keys, you gave this nice, I assume, Latin word. Yeah. Can you write that down? Yeah. Potestas flavium. Somebody, um, of course, Michael, my Latinist just walked out the door. Um, I've got it in my notes. Yeah, it's potestas clavium. Power of the keys. Claves is, or, or is the keys. That's, we have a, that's why we have a conclave with a key. We're locked in. Conclavus. So the potestas clavium is the, the power of the keys. Thank you. Uh, so this is perhaps a little tangential. Um, so when you're talking about the stance, the, the position of the priest and how the priest is not a stand-in for God, um, and yet the priest is not exactly the same thing as just the telephone line either. Yeah, yeah. Um, so of course, I'm thinking about uh, similarities and differences between the relationship between the priest and the penitent and the relationship between a therapist and a patient. And I know obviously there are huge differences, but I was wondering, uh, in your experience, is there anything like the kind of dynamic transference? Yeah, between the analyst and the analysand. Yeah, I mean, both, both Freud and Lacan have, have talked so much about this, and it's, um, yeah, I, I think that, that we do see this, this transference, and it is, uh, it, it is something that we need to be constantly on, on guard uh, against. Um, within the context of, speaking to my own experience, uh, within the context of the HAC, uh, the sacrament of reconciliation is relatively rare because we do not demand it as a requirement to receive the, the Eucharist or anything like that. Um, which is wonderful because I know that when uh, when penitents do come to me, it's it's because they need something special that I can offer them, and that's that's very rewarding. Uh, that's very uh, that's very uplifting in and of itself. Um, and so I I've tended not to uh, to experience that phenomenon directly. Um, that said, I think that uh, that many of the uh, analyst analysis and uh, structures. Are going to map onto uh, the the penitent and the confessor, and and there are there are dangers there. You know, the, you know that way lie dragons. So. so, are there specific ways of disrupting the transference and that kind of thing before it gets started, or are there possibly positive positive dimensions of it? Um, I, I mean, I think that I've. My own thinking on this matter is influenced sufficiently by Lacan to say that this is not a univocal uh, phenomenon. This is not, you know, it's not just, oh, you know, this is dangerous. But um, I, I think that the, the structure of the relationship um, is sufficiently similar to, to raise the dangers. Uh, and so I don't know that I have specific ideas about 
uh, about ways to disrupt that if it were necessary to disrupt that. It would be something that I would need to give a lot more thought to, but it would be something that I could, you know, that, that we probably should explore. Yeah, that's another thing. <laughs> We always say, yeah. Do we um, have an actual um, practical, not practical, but do we, do we actually have a rote? Do we have a ritual for, for a confession? Yes. Yes. We have yes. A yes, there is. Uh, it's very brief, uh, it's very straightforward. Um, in most cases, uh, you know, if you were to go to uh, your confessor and, and, you know, want to partake of the, the sacrament of reconciliation, she or he would have, um, you know, would have it written out for you. Um, you know, there, there are uh, ritual statements that you make. That's part of the, um, that's part of the form of the, of the sacrament. So, yeah, we do have our own uh, specific form of that. So, Paul, did you have a question? Or? Any other questions? This is something that more of Tony. I, yeah, but it's it's not entirely related. So, I'll, so okay. So we'll take it. This is something that I think is an important function of the clergy within the AJC. The function is different from that in the Orthodox, the Catholic, the Anglican, the Lutheran communions. Uh, to be sure, and, and as much as we rely extensively on that history and that tradition, the way that we experience it is, I think, unique to the AJC. And it's not something that uh, is a necessary precondition, as I said, for receiving a communion or anything like that, but it can be an important function that we can play as priests in making sure that, that we are able to be guides and facilitators of our congregation's spiritual development. So, thank you very much.